as we looked at God's purpose in evangelism, God's plan in evangelism, God's person in evangelism, we want today to look at God's pleasure. And really the way we've given you the title, I think, is the right way to think of it. Look at the title at the top of your note sheet there, and it says, Evangelism, colon, God's, and then fill in the blank for each of these messages today, it's God's pleasure. God's pleasure. And so we're not going to look so much at God's pleasure in evangelism as we will look at God's pleasure behind it. We will look more at God's pleasure behind evangelism that leads to evangelism. Really, God's pleasure in the gospel that leads to impassioned evangelism. How can you become an effective evangelist? You want to be that. If you are saved, if you are in Christ, if you have experienced the compassion of Jesus Christ, then at least on occasion, you desire to be used by Christ to see people come to know Christ. There are times where your heart aches. You think of the desperate and discouraged and depressed condition of those that you love. You look at them and you you think, "I, I love this person. I would like for this person to be happy. There's a complete lack of joy. You might even say that about someone who's been involved in the church for many, many, many years. It's not unoften, it's not unusual for me as a pastor to hear these words. I don't know what happened. I raised my kids in the church and I can't figure out what happened. I say spend less time figuring out what happened and more time figuring out what needs to happen. Because what happened is in a sense the result of parenting. Can I just say that? My kids are in a sense who they are because I've affected them and in some ways negatively. I'm not getting you off the hook but I'm also not defying the reality that God is sovereign. But unfortunately, the pendulum swings very wide on this issue. Some would say, well, I don't know. I raised my kids right. I don't have any idea what happened. Well, do you own a Bible? On the other hand, there will those be those who will say, my kids turned out great. Didn't I do a good job? You see the fallacy in both mindsets. The reality is that you do play a substantial role in the outcome of your children. Are you an evangelist in your home? Yes, you are. You're either a good one or a bad one or somewhere in between. So the role you and I must be willing to take on in our lives, whether it's in the home, at the workplace, in the neighborhood, wherever you spend time on a casual basis or a regular basis, you must think of yourself as an evangelist. And so let me say it again. Spend less time trying to figure out what happened with your kids and with your neighbors and whoever else and more time thinking about what needs to happen today. And let me plead with you not to be so hyper-offended by what I've said to you this morning that you don't hear anything else that I say the rest of the morning. And remind me 10 years from now what I said about parenting. Fair enough? Remind me today if you want. We're going to see that it pleased God to crush his son. It pleased God to crush his son. Say, oh, that's... Now, where are you getting that? You do own a Bible. I know you do. I'm going to show you in your Bible where this is. You probably know already, some of you. We'll see that it pleased God to crush his son for our sins. Why? So that we will proclaim his message. That's why. 
That's why. Really, the ultimate idea, the ultimate impetus in my heart this morning is that you would become an effective evangelist by acknowledging that God executed His Son for your sins. That's the deal. I want you to be moved by that. I want me to be moved by that. I want for you and for me, I want for us as a local church, I want those that you know and those that you affect, those that you love, would be greatly impacted and moved by the reality that the God of heaven poured his wrath out upon his son by choice. And those may sound like words that are difficult to comprehend and believe and understand, but I'll show you this from the scripture. I'm going to ask you some questions and then we'll answer them together. Question number one, why was it necessary for Jesus Christ to die? If you're taking notes, that's your Question number one, why was it necessary for Jesus Christ to die? And I'm going to give you these in in a a true outline format. So that's Roman numeral one. Letter A, it was prophesied. It was prophesied. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. You see this same terminology specifically in regard to Jesus Christ. The idea that he is the firstborn of God's fruits. That he is uh, the preeminent one. That he is the heir. The, uh, the firstborn who receives prominence in the family. That same terminology is used here in Zechariah 12 and it speaks of him being pierced into the future. Psalm 22 verse 1, really a classic text, prophetic of the, uh, the uh, execution of Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see this again in 2 Corinthians 5. This is David speaking prophetically in the words that Jesus Christ would one day utter. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Further in Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The same terminology in John 19, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. In Matthew 5, verse 17, we read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What was predetermined for Jesus to accomplish accomplish, was in fact accomplished in his earthly reign, in his earthly time, and ultimately will be in his earthly reign. Letter B, not only was his death prophesied, it was predestined by the Father. It was predestined by the Father. Steve Camp in his song written and sung many years ago sings these words. Christ died for God. 
You say, but the scripture teaches that he died for me. He died for my sins. He ultimately died for God's glory according to the predestined plan of God. In Acts 2, beginning with verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, man's responsibility, man's guilt in light of God's predetermined foreknowledge and plan. It's not plan B. This is what God established from eternity past. But see, so much of Christendom today focuses in on this idea that God just responded and it continues to respond throughout the course of history to what man has done. There is a sense in which, yes, God does respond to man's sin with judgment. But it's important for you to understand and be humbled by and really to be brought low along with me that we would together be brought low with regard to the fact that God is sovereign. He is sovereign in all the details. I'm going to emphasize this a little bit more later, but let me just kind of tell you now, put a little bug in your ear so that you're thinking about this, so that you're encouraged by this. If God is sovereign in the details, you can, and by the way, you should trust Him. Not that person in your life that you would hope would change. Not your job that you'd like to replace with another one. And on and on and on. Ultimately, we trust Him because He's sovereign. He's sovereign in the details. You don't have a free will. In Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see man's responsibility. You see man's efforts, kings and princes coming together to gather against him, that they would attack him. God's anointed one under the attack of those who are evil. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's a sense in which we could stop here. And I want to stop here for a minute and give you an opportunity to meditate and absorb this distinct and foundational reality. Nothing, not one detail, certainly not the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has escaped or bypassed or in any way taken God's sovereignty off guard. As long as the human mind, especially the Christian spirit indwelt human mind fights this reality. Nothing else makes sense. You must humble yourself and learn to look through everything in the scripture through this grid. Otherwise, you will be prideful. You will be angry at God's sovereignty. You will be especially angry at those who teach God's sovereignty. And you will never come to the place where you have any effectiveness in the true church of Jesus Christ. It just won't happen. Because you're kicking against the goads, to use Paul's terminology. You're fighting against that which God has made crystal clear. Now, he doesn't place upon you nor upon me to have full and comprehensive understanding of it. But he does call us to believe it and understand it to the degree that we can. 
so again, what we said here is that in terms of the, the work of the Lord, it is predestined by the Father. So why was it necessary for Jesus Christ to die? Again, that's question one. It was prophesied. It was predestined by the Father. And let her see God's righteousness demands judgment. God's righteousness demands judgment. God is righteous. God is righteous. Psalm 96 verse 13 says, Before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth, He will judge the world in righteousness. Now nail that down. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. God can't get it wrong. He can't and doesn't, never has, never will judge anything with any degree of flaw. He always gets it right. A friend of mine years ago said to me, Todd, you need to learn to thank God that he is just when he judges. Sometimes his judgment hurts in your life and my life and others' lives. But he's always right. It's always good. It's always righteous. And remember this, he disciplines those whom he loves. That's why you discipline your children. You love them. You want their lives to go well. You want them to experience grace. So God is righteous. Job 37, 23 the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power and He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. He won't do violence to it. He won't run off the rails. He will always stay on the rail of righteousness. He can't remove Himself from the rail of righteousness. It's impossible. He would not be God if He did. Psalm 7, 11-12, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That's anger. It's heightened anger, indignation. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. So under letter C, that's number one, God is righteous. Number two, under letter C, man is unrighteous. I don't need to explain this much, but the reality is this is the opposite of righteous. There is an utter chasm Spiritually, between God and mankind in our natural born condition. Genesis 6.5 tells us that every thought and intent of man's heart is only evil continually. This destroys any kind of man-made theology or man-focused theology, man-driven theology that says that man can bring himself to Christ. And if you've been in America for any period of time at all, you've heard someone from a pulpit tell you, you must accept Christ. And the Bible doesn't, first of all, it doesn't command you to do, do that. It doesn't call you to do that. But second, and far more important, fundamentally, the scripture explains the condition into which you were born, leaving you completely unable to accept Christ. You can't. You couldn't. What is it about Genesis 6-5 that's so difficult to understand when... Moses tells us that every thought and intent of man's heart is only evil continually. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked go astray from the womb. You know, psychologists will tell you it starts when you're 12. You know, 7th grade or so. No. It's in the womb. It's in conception really, according to Psalm 51. David says, I was conceived in sin. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart of man is sick. It's wicked. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2.1, we're dead 
in our trespasses and sins. And yet somehow, man has managed, even with these passages that, that are clearly an anthropological thread that, that runs throughout the scripture, he is somehow able to take these passages and bypass it like a fighter pilot. No, no, I'm going to work around that. I've heard all that before, but you don't know what I think is. What that really means is, what sounds better to me is, what feels better. I mean, you'll never win anybody in evangelism if you tell them that you know, they're totally depraved. Exactly. I don't want to win anybody in evangelism. I want the Lord to do it with the true message of man's actual need. I don't want to persuade anybody. The minute I persuade somebody, they're not persuaded unto a salvific experience. I want God to persuade man. You want God to persuade man. It's important for us then to acknowledge that God is righteous. Man is unrighteous. Romans 3 verse 10. Many of you have this memorized. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Man's heart is as an open grave. Meaning that it's a a limitless, bottomless abyss of wickedness. There is no measuring man's wickedness. And unfortunately, here's how we often tend to look at this. And unbelievers do too. We look at those who are so much more prevalently prevalently known throughout history and in the world today and with the internet and with television even, of course, we have a much greater awareness of just how evil man's depravity is expressed. And so we compare ourselves to Saddam Hussein, right? Current president of Syria. He's a bad guy. I'll never be that bad. You you fill in the list. You know, your next door neighbor, or whatever. So we compare ourselves, and the reality is, this is so important, the playing field is leveled with regard to the condition into which you're born. You're not born any less or any more evil than anybody else. It's utter and complete and total depravity. You say, I don't, I don't like that. The reason I don't like it is because my experience defies that. I've seen lots and lots of people doing lots and lots of things much worse than I would ever even consider doing. And that is a matter of God's grace. God has restrained you if you don't do things worse than your next door neighbor or your cousin in Alabama or wherever. Right? It's God's grace. But because man is unrighteous and God is righteous, God must mete out justice on the unrighteous. Point number three here. Let me go back and give these to you again. Give these to you again. Hopefully it's clear. Number one, under letter C, God is righteous. Number two, man is unrighteous. Number three, righteousness judges unrighteousness. Righteousness judges unrighteousness. God judges man. Righteous God judges unrighteous man. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And now, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is an expression of a righteous judge judging the un.
righteous. In the wedding feast in Matthew 22 verse 13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of eternal torment for the one who shows up at the wedding feast in unrighteous clothing. By the way, it has nothing to do with what you should wear at a wedding today. It has everything to do with what you should wear in your heart in the presence of the Lord. This is an illustration. It's a metaphor by which we would understand that God demands that we submit to Him on His terms. And a man who shows up at a wedding feast in non-wedding feast clothing in this day, in the day of Christ, and the day in which He walked the earth, was a man who showed up at the wedding feast on his own terms if he didn't wear the right clothing. And so it symbolizes or it expresses the great problem with attempting to come to God on his terms. You see judgment in Matthew 25, 32. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There is a judgment and it is real. This is why we are encouraged by Jesus' words that he laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep. In Matthew 25, 44, Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God judges unrighteousness. He does not bat an eye. He does not wink at sin. He does not look over injustice. He judges all of it, every ounce of it, every drop of it, every measure of it. No injustice will go unpunished. But right now, that might be attacking what you have been taught in the past with regard to what Jesus did on the cross. Many people will say, well, because he died, because he was resurrected, we're all good. That's universalism, as you know, the idea that everybody goes to heaven. But even those who don't believe in universalism will sometimes say, well, thank God for what Jesus did, because I'm not going to be punished because of what he did. Really? Do you know that? You can know that. But do you know that? Why do you know that? What is it in the scripture that causes you to know that? Is it just this general idea that Jesus died for sinners and he was resurrected unto new life and therefore because of that I'm, I'm going to be fine? Well there's a sense in which that's true for those who have trusted in him. But for those who, know, who show no indication that they love him and that they trust him and that they obey him and they somehow are leaning on what he did in a, in a distanced sense in a disconnected way That's a false sense of security. We we rest solely and completely upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But we rest in it. We don't just say (laughs) we rest in it. Right? Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Right? Right? 
God's wrath will be poured out from heaven in full upon those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We see a lot of that today. It's been true throughout history, but seemingly more and more prevalent in our society. Watching it unfold in an amazing way. So, we've seen that God is righteous, man is unrighteous. Righteousness judges unrighteousness. Letter D. Letter D, to answer the question, why did Jesus Christ die? Letter D, man needs a substitute. Man needs a substitute, otherwise he dies. Otherwise he suffers what he deserves. He needs someone to substitute for him. He needs substitutionary death. Someone to take his place. If he takes his own place, he dies and he suffers forever. So if he's going to avoid suffering forever, if he's going to be exalted, uh, if he's going to be involved in the exaltation of God and Jesus Christ, he needs someone to take his punishment for him. Letter E, Christ bore the sins of the elect. Christ bore the sins of the elect. As I said to you from the book of John, Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. He became sin. He had to die when he became sin. There's no turning back at that point. God must punish sin. Righteousness judges unrighteousness. Are you saying Jesus became unrighteous? I'm saying what the Bible says. He became sin. He did not engage in unrighteousness. He cannot sin. He is impeccable. Although he experienced and resisted and triumphed over the fullness of Satan's temptation, he did not sin. He did not sin with his actions. He did not sin with his speech. He did not sin with his eyes. He did not sin in his heart. So because he did not sin, and although he bore the sins of all those for whom he would die, he is the substitute. He can and did substitute for all those who would trust in him. When Christ took on our sin, he took on the guilt. He took on the shame. And therefore necessarily took the punishment. There's no winking at sin on God's part. There was an exchange. There was a substitution. One stood in the place of the other. They traded places. God poured His wrath out upon His Son, and therefore those who deserve it are spared the experience of it. So in that measure of forgiveness, God forgives the sins of those who committed them by punishing the one who didn't. This is substitution. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. The just who judges the unjust died for the unjust. The penalty deliverer received it himself. How does he do that? Why does he do that? 
Peter goes on to say, so that he might bring us to God. You didn't bring yourself to God. Get that out of your mind. It's really offensive to the Lord. You see here that Jesus in his substitutionary death brought you to God and you look at someone and you say, let me tell you how I came to God. You see the insult and the offense of such ridiculous speech? I chose Jesus. Really? Why did he die then? Did he need to die? You were going to choose him. You chose him. You were so smart you chose him. No, you didn't choose him. So I've told you time and time again, John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me. I chose you. Why did the just die for the unjust? So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God did not die. We sang one of my favorite hymns this morning, And Can It Be? How can it be, the song goes, that my God died for me? Well, we changed that lyric. Because God didn't die. Jesus' humanity expired and His deity continued to exist in fullness. There was not a moment, there was not a flicker in time where God stopped being God. There was a moment, there were three days in fact, where the manhood, the humanity of God ceased to be alive physically. And so that punishment that he being separated from his father, being separated from one with whom he has experienced fullness and completeness of unity since eternity past and on into eternity future. That separation serves as a substitute for you and me that we would not experience that in eternity. You say, well, he just did that for three days, but because he is an eternal being, being separated from his Father, experiencing that punishment in full, because he is eternal, because the Father is eternal, that separation, though he as God did not die, as a human, he did die. There was a separation between him and the Father. In fact, you know this. You know this. His Father turned his back on him. He abandoned him. He rejected him. What does this mean? Question number two. What does this mean? We've answered the question, why did Jesus have to die? God is righteous. Man is unrighteous. Man needs a substitute. Christ bore the sins of the elect. He must then die. Question two, what does this mean? Well, as I said, it, it means substitution. Because he died, your substitute has filled in for you. He's taken what you deserve, but will not receive. This should change your life. It should change your attitude. It should change everything about you. It should cause you to rejoice in every minute. But if you don't think about this, if you don't hear preaching that extols this reality, then you'll never remember it. If you don't read your Bible, if you're not surrounding yourself with people who read their Bible and pray and spend time thinking about these things and discussing these things, 
to be meditating on and thinking about the depth and the riches of the power of the gospel that changes our lives. Not just in eternity, but today. In Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He took the death on the cross that you and I deserve. He substituted for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, that's what that does. That's what that gospel reality does. That's how the gospel changes your thinking because he died a substitutionary death You don't experience the death and the torment that you deserve. He experienced it for you. And so you live to righteousness. You say, I don't don't do that. I don't don't do that. I don't live to righteousness. I don't know know what you're talking about. This is a serious problem. Listen carefully. Plead with God to penetrate your heart. Plead with Him to produce in you repentance and belief in the gospel. Plead with Him to produce in you a hatred for your sin because your sin causes you, just as mine does me, to deserve eternal torment. And if this doesn't mean anything to you, and if it doesn't result in a passion for personal holiness, then you have bought the lie of 21st century modern pseudo-Christianity. The idea that you can ask Jesus into your heart and get along your way and your life never changes. They call it easy believism. Well, you know, I made him my savior. Maybe I'll make him my Lord later. That's not a Christian. This also means abandonment, as I mentioned. What does this mean that Jesus Christ died? It means abandonment. It means, as I said before, that his father abandoned him. Matthew 26, 36 says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, you know this verse, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, that sounds, I don't know, first glance that sounds like double-mindedness. No. It sounds like passion undergirded with trust. Desperation founded upon sovereignty. And it's good. It's good. 
Because as we have said, Jesus divested himself from his deified prerogatives. There was knowledge that he chose to do without. He emptied himself for a time. And so it led to his need and his ability to exemplify trust. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You have felt that way. I doubt that many of us have ever been that close in our grief that we almost died of sadness. But this is the true reality of his emotional state. It's a deeply theological and yet deeply human reality in his heart that he experienced anguish to the point of death. Such that he would say, Father, if it's possible, spare me from your wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. The very next chapter, uh, chapter 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that maybe the most important thing for you and me to acknowledge when we see this verse is that he did in fact forsake his son. He did in fact turn his back on his son. He did in fact execute his son according to his predetermined plan. What else did this result in? What was the result? That's question number two. What does this mean? Atonement? I am the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Atonement means a covering. So it is as if your sins were never committed. His death means that God treats you as if your sins were never committed. Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system never resulted in ultimate atonement. It was a picture of atonement. Hebrews 10.14 For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Who's sanctified? Those who are being cleansed. Those who are looking less like self and more like Christ throughout the progression of their lives. The way John said it in John chapter 3 verse 30 was May he increase and may I decrease. That is sanctification. You're being cleansed. The person who's being cleansed, the person who's being likened to the image of Jesus Christ, he's putting off sin. He's putting on Christ. This is the person about whom the writer of Hebrews speaks. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testified to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You you and I should be jumping up and shouting, at least at some point throughout the day today, thanking God that he has said, I will remember not your sins against you. The worst of your sins that you committed against a family member this morning. A co-worker this last week. Something that you've been punished severely for. 
The Lord does not say he will forget it. He says he will remember it not. He is not somehow non-omniscient all of a sudden. He knows everything. But the point is, he does not remember them against you. They are not held to your account. Verse 18 of Hebrews 10. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is why we no longer engage in the sacrificial system. But it also should be in your life and in my life while we no longer engage in penance. Trying to earn God's favor. Trying to beat ourselves up. This is what led Martin Luther, at least one thing that led Martin Luther to the reality that life in Christ, if he understood it, which he didn't, was not good. Because it was a constant effort to beat himself into a worse condition than what he actually deserved so that he could earn back what he had committed against Christ. And it was Romans 1.17 that convinced him the futility of Roman Catholicism. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. There's no longer any offering for sin. Uh, you don't need to re-die. You don't need to be repunished. But by the way, Christ doesn't need to re-die. That's why we don't keep him on the cross. The cross is empty. The person who needs Christ to be back on the cross doesn't understand this. And so he's constantly going back to engage in some form of personal punishment so as to earn favor with God is over against the, the disposition that warrants him being punished for his sin. He wants to overcome it in his own works. Redemption. Redemption. Another answer to the question, what does this mean? You're redeemed. You know the song, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. You're redeemed unto holiness. You're redeemed out of the depths of despair. You're redeemed from hell. Propitiation. Propitiation, this word really means satisfaction. There's a little more to it than that, but it also means this. It means propitiation. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you think of the word propitiation, you should think certainty. All those for whom Christ died will be redeemed. There's not one drop of Christ's blood that will be spent unusefully. Christ died for the elect. You say, but wait a minute. In 1 John 2 verse 2 it says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Show me in any lexicon or any dictionary where the word world means every single person in the world. I'd love to have that discussion. The word world, the word cosmos in the Greek does not mean every single person in the world. He died for those among every tongue, tribe, and nation. And there will be those from every tongue, tribe, and nation who will, in fact, experience the certain effect of propitiation. Did Christ die potentially? For everyone? If that's the case, he died for no one. If that's the case, his death made no propitiation for anybody. It was completely dependent upon man to respond. You understand that? 
The idea of Christ dying potentially for everyone makes certain nobody's salvation. It means it's completely dependent upon him, and Jesus isn't sovereign, nor is the Father sovereign. But on the other hand, because of propitiation, because of what propitiation means, certain satisfaction in the heart of the Father because of what the Son accomplished on the cross means that all of those for whom Christ died will be saved. They will be presented to him one day. It means reconciliation. This is really what evangelism is. It means reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled to us himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You see that again? You see, if Christ, if world means every person in the world, then you're a universalist. I don't think you are. Namely, that Christ was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is evangelism. This is your involvement. Because you are reconciled, you are involved in reconciliation. Because he has caused you to be born again. You want others to be born again. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So yes, you're appealing to the person that you hope to see know Christ. You're appealing to that person, but you're not appealing to that person based upon the flesh. You're communicating the gospel with what? With a reconciliatory lifestyle. Your life proves the holiness of God. You want to be holy because He is holy. You are holy because He is holy. And you walk in that holiness. You're an ambassador for Christ. And so you make an appeal to others because you can. Because you have a platform to do it. People who know you know whether or not you walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, you not only have a clear conscience, you have a deep desire to communicate truth to others that they would know him. Why? Verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that is the lifestyle that commands a response. As you walk in holiness, because he who knew no sin became sin, giving righteousness to you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. People see that, and they know it to be different. They know that you're not hung up on yourself, and your quirks, and your idiosyncrasies, and your need for you know the food that you get at the restaurant to be exactly the right way, or you send it back. Every little detail of your life has to be exactly as you have ordered it. You're not like that anymore. You're not like that anymore. Why? Romans 5 verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. We were enemies. We were enemies of God. We were born into utter and complete enmity against the Lord. He broke that. You didn't. He destroyed that enmity. You didn't. You couldn't. 
The very essence of your nature was enmity and hatred and vileness against the Lord. And the Lord caused you to be broken, to be made alive. And therefore you are seated at his table, the table of the king. Well, how should you respond then? How should you respond? Well, you should remember that the father found pleasure in crushing his son for you. That's a good response. God the father decimated his only son, his righteous son, his holy son, out of his love for you. Number two, you should be thankful that he willingly received the father's wrath for you. That's a good response. Thank the Lord. Thank Jesus. Thank Him specifically that He absorbed the wrath of His Father that He did not deserve. The wrath that you do deserve but will not receive because He substituted for you. Number three, you should worship Him. That's a right response, isn't it? To thank Him in song. To cry out to Him from the depths of your heart. Singing the theology back to Him that He has not only given to you in your Bible, but established in your heart as being true and good and right. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign King. He is good. He is gracious. He is loving. He is righteous. He is worthy of our praise. Number four, you should die to self. Because you're following His example. He did not return revile with revile. He did not return insult for insult, but you do. So do I. When we're treated poorly, we believe we deserve better. You know, cut to the chase of that. Don't, you know, don't require someone to counsel you for an hour and a half to get you there. Just choose in the moment to believe and be convinced and be changed by the fact that he, being attacked and criticized and insulted and reviled, chose not to return in kind, but instead died for those who attacked him? You then should die to self. You should die daily. You should get up every single morning of your life and say, today my life is not mine. It belongs to God. I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ. I'm an ambassador of the King. I am a I'm a faithful member of his plan of reconciliation and I will take this message to those who will hear it. Number five, you should consider others as more important than yourself. Now let let me tell you what I didn't just say. I did not just say you should act like others are more important than you. I said you should consider others as more important than self. That's biblical humility. You should actually believe it. Believe that others are more important than you are. Number six, you should thank Him when you suffer for Him. You should thank Him when you suffer for Him. Jesus said, when they hate you, it's because they hate me. Romans 8, verse 17. And if children, you are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we may suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see that? You see the inextricable link between those who are going to be glorified with Christ and those who will suffer with 
Christ, if you're not being persecuted, if you've never been persecuted for your faith, you should really question whether or not you're among those who will be glorified with Christ. There's no separation between these two realities. Those who will be glorified with Christ are those who are persecuted and suffer for Christ. Number seven, you should serve his church for whom he also died. Right? And you love that if you're in Christ. You love serving those who love serving the church, who love serving Christ. You love that. You want to be involved in one local church where you can spend your life pouring in with maximum involvement, maximum impact, maximum effect. That God's glory would be on display as a local body displays the glory of Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. You should serve His church for whom He also died. Sadly though, sometimes you may even spend your time weaving webs of distrust and bitterness toward those for whom Christ died when you should be serving them with good deeds and prayer. This is the reality of the wayward human heart. Even those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God spend substantial time thinking and meditating on and even planning as a result of negative thoughts about other believers. You're wasting your time do that. Serve the church. Love the church. Pray for the church. Know people individually. Know them well. Sacrifice for them. Don't waste your life having superficial relationships. Don't spend your time getting to know people just to the degree that you can kind of remember their name. Spend your time. Spend your life investing in that which is eternal. Number eight. You should serve the lost. You should serve the lost. And that, my friends, is evangelism. That is evangelism. Serving the lost because Christ served the lost. He did not come to heal those who were well. He came to heal the sick. You should serve and love and pray for the sick. I'm going to close by reading to you Isaiah 53. And if I could just ask you to to listen intently, pleading with the Lord to help you hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. Who has believed our message? Start to the question. Who has believed our message? You should ask this question in your own life. I should ask this question. We should ask this question as a church. Who believes us? Are we believable? Are we credible? Or is there so much sin-spinning, blame-shifting, sin-denying efforts in our lives that no one believes a word we say? Who will believe our message? It's a good question. Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore 
and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Father, we think it unimaginable that a a father would hold his son accountable for the sins of others. He being innocent and yet taking on the sins of the world. We think it unimaginable that one who is innocent would receive the fullness of wrath, the fullness of eternal discipline, the fullness of executionary judgment for those who were guilty and deserving. We don't really comprehend that. But we know and believe and trust in the fact that it was necessary. We ask not for favor upon us because of our deeds, because of our obedience, because of our prayers, because of anything that we think or say or do, but because of Christ and what He has accomplished. We lean wholly and completely and exclusively upon the law-fulfilling life of the virgin-born God-man, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. His substitutionary, atoning, redeeming, death and his new life giving, sin destroying death conquering resurrection and Lord we ask that you would help us to be sober about this, I pray that we would not be a church divided over these clear and true doctrines but that we would humble ourselves before them that we would be effective in evangelism If we are divided with regard to who is sovereign and who is not, if we are divided over who has free will and who does not, we will be ineffective. There will be dissension. There will be arguments. There will be backbiting. 
There will be slander. There will be gossip. So, Father, we pray that you would humble us before these truths. Help us to acknowledge that you have called us to maximum effort in a work in which we must be completely dependent upon you. Help us to recognize that in your sovereignty, you have not only ordained the outcome, but you have ordained the means. You have laid out the pathway for us to be involved in that which you have decreed in eternity past. That we would rest in your sovereign decree, praying, pleading with you to save the unregenerate. Making no effort to manipulate them by the flesh into some sort of decision but that we would display the gospel by living in light of it in our lives, that we would know the gospel and be willing to declare it with our mouths, that we would sacrifice and serve the church, that we would sacrifice and serve the lost, that we would ask the question, why must Christ have died? Why did he need to die? May we answer it biblically, faithfully, effectively, that those who would ask would receive a proper and effective and truly honest answer from your word. But may we then be able to answer the practical question, what does it matter? What does it mean then? Can we go on believing that we had something to do with our salvation? That Christ's blood was in fact potentially spilled for us? Can we go on believing that we had to flip the switch, that he died for all, but that we somehow were smart enough to figure it out and so we chose to accept him? Can we continue believing that? Father, help us. Help us to be wrecked in our souls when we begin to think that we had something to do with your sovereign work. Father, I pray for those who still battle against these clear truths, that you would humble them For it is only pride that resists these deep and comforting realities. When we cling to any measure of willingness to believe that we somehow were better than others who haven't chosen Christ because we have. But destroy our pride and do it with the gospel. Lord, help us to recall the reality that the solution to all of our problems is the gospel. If we know the gospel, we meditate on the gospel. If we cling closely, especially to the book of John, and we understand that you are sovereign in what you have accomplished, and you will do what you have determined to do, then we will want to trust you and not self. Lord, we pray that we'd not go from here keeping this message to ourselves. That we would ask the question, who has believed our message? Why would they believe our message? Why would they think that our message is any different from Roman Catholicism? Any different from Mormonism? Any different from Jehovah's Witnesses? Why would they think that it's any different if it's not different? Father, help us to be sobered by the rich reality of your sovereignty and Christ's love, that he would extend his love to us, that we might thank him and be humbled by what he has accomplished for the certain outcome that you ordained and decreed in eternity past. Help us to be effectively evangelistic by communicating these truths in how we think, in how we pray, in how we serve, in how we respond to those who treat us in an ugly manner that we would not return revile with revile or insult with insult, but that we would entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. 
Father, we thank you that it pleased you to crush your son for our sins, for your glory. Amen.